0: tense negotiations and the pressures of closing while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. In this episode, we hear from Praveen Varshney of Varshney Capital. I have to say this is a very enjoyable episode. Praveen and his family have built up a merchant banking and advisory firm that has created an incredible reputation. We get into the details of his past wins and losses, and about how social impact investing has now become a major focus for Varshni Capital. We also hear about how he operates his business. For example, we discuss what he calls the one trade model in public venture capital. We also go deeper into talking about securing aligned capital, and even extending share lockup periods for founders and investors alike. I very much enjoyed reconnecting with Praveen. Hearing about his approach to being a valuable partner in building hugely valuable companies is inspiring. I'm sure you'll get a lot out of this episode. Enjoy, Praveen. Thanks so much for taking the time.
1: Uh, thanks for having me, Corey. Great to uh, have a chance to speak with you and your uh, listeners.
0: Yeah, it's uh, well. It's nice to catch up. It has been a long time. Uh, I, you know, I really thought it would be a great. Uh, Opportunity to to hear about your years. I mean, as you mentioned, twenty five plus years now uh, in the capital markets, public venture capital. And what I'd like to hear is is you know your elevator pitch of sorts, and get to know who Praveen is and what you're doing in in the world of finance.
1: Uh, fantastic. Yeah. No. Uh, so maybe I'll start with uh, my background. So um, uh, a business degree from UBC, and uh, my career went in three phases and. Life is serendipitous. You don't necessarily plan things; they kind of happen. You go through a door, or some you don't go through. You know, but you're kind of where you are, obviously, because of the sum of everything you went through prior. But um, after my business degree at UBC, I uh, became an account yeah CPA by profession. Uh, I worked at KPMG for five years. I uh, got good background and training um, to do what I'm doing now. Um, but I think you know accounting background or some uh, education that is Important for anybody and everybody, right? Because it uh, crosses every industry. And, um, you know, if you're making investments or become a venture capitalist, uh, accounting is such a critical component of analyzing some of these companies. Um, and then after I left KPMG, I joined my father, who's a CPA as well, and my younger brother, who's a securities lawyer. And we became entrepreneurs. So we actually started. Uh, four companies, Uh, three became very successful. The last one had some initial success as well, but ultimately we uh, closed it and um, shifted to uh, this active investment model. But anyways, 10 year run where uh, we built these companies and exited uh, a bunch and created a bunch of capital. And uh, once you got a bunch of money, it can become a full-time job if you wanted to be, to manage your money. So we basically created this family office uh, called varsity Capital, and so we've been doing that for about 17 years now. So uh, it's basically a, um, a model where we invest in entrepreneurs, uh, but actively. So uh, we'll do a bit of passive investing, but generally we're going to roll up our sleeves and take a board seat or an advisory role um, or even a CFO role for a period of time until the company can justify uh, and afford a full-time CFO. Um, so, yeah, and the focus is, as you touched on, uh, I believe, but uh, EVC, public venture capital. So this is where we're using the uh, stock markets, primarily in Canada. Uh, so the TSX Venture Exchange, the Toronto Stock Exchange, the CSE, to take uh, uh, early growth stage companies in public, not as an exit strategy, but another way to capitalize them and continue to grow. Um, and uh, we'll often uplist our companies as they get I'd bigger, see, to more I'd senior see. exchanges, including in the U.S., like on NASDAQ.
0: You bring up an interesting point there, being working within the world of public venture capital, and I think is Canada and and with the venture exchange and the, the CSE, we have a really unique environment there. But you saying as not an exit strategy, but as a, a financing tool or a, a capital formation tool, that's what it is. And can can we go down that path?
1: Yeah, no, definitely. And and so you know, when it comes to uh, raising capital for companies, you know, um, generally you know you got debt, you've got sub-debt, you've got uh, convertible debt, you've got pref shares, common shares, you've got all these different tools and mechanisms to, to raise money. And there's different business models. So um, you know, for a lot of companies, you know, they may have some success initially raising money privately, but at some point, you know, they might hit a wall. And not every company is VCable. Like a lot of people have those blurred you know, vision, unicorn, billion-dollar market cap, la-la land, as I call it, <laughs> and <laughs> dreams. And the reality is so few actually make it that way. And once you've had some experience working with actual venture capital term sheets, you know, you realize that, you know, there's a lot of bells and whistles um, that you don't hear about. All you ever hear is about the valuation metrics.
0: I refer to them as hooks
1: and not yeah, so much bells sure. and
0: whistles. And I think it's something that people have to be very much aware of.
1: Correct, yeah. So things like anti dilution rights, liquidation preferences, you know, that kind of thing. And so, um, and then VCs also look for certain types of businesses. And so, uh, for a lot of companies, they're not going to fit that path or want to go down that path. And so, uh, when you hit that ceiling for uh, raising capital, where do you go? And so, this public venture capital model, which we have in Canada, is a a wonderful mechanism that a lot of countries don't have. And so, we're actually seeing uh, demand. Increase the number of companies from around the world that want to tap into our capital markets to go down this path to raise capital through uh, a listing. So, um, you know, when you list on NASDAQ, you know, big company like Uber and Lyft and you know, Spotify recently did, it is an exit strategy because a lot of the early investors are going to be selling. Um, but with our model, as uh, uh, we touched on, it's just the beginning. It's just another way to kind of keep growing. And then you're going to want to probably keep raising more capital as a public company to grow. Um, and what we found is the best exit, whether you're a pure private company or a quote, a public one, our model is a strategic sale. So we try and work with our entrepreneurs, help them grow the company through the public markets, and then exit them as a public company. So uh, we call it the one trade model. <laughs> so you got your long position, and then you build, and then hopefully you exit uh, uh, as a public company.
0: I see. Okay. Now, uh, Praveen, there's so many so many directions we can go, and and what I what I jumped on right quick there was the PVC booth, uh, the PVC path. But what we didn't get into was more about uh, Varshney Capital. And, and the work you're doing there. So, do you mind if we jump back there and, and uh, we can get a better picture of, of what Varsity Capital is?
1: For sure, for sure, yeah. And, and so, uh, even with our firm, it was trial and error and a bit of experimentation before we kind of you know, settled on what we'd be doing for a number of years. But um, you know, we we did some you know, private minority investments and, and the way I phrase it, the, the problem with pure private investing, especially if you're going to be a minority investor in someone's private dream is you don't know how you're going to get a return of capital, let alone return on capital. And, um, um, you know, I've seen the the, the horror side of, of, you know, when you're a minority investor, because if you've got somebody who's going to be unscrupulous, um, you know, what are you going to do? Like, you know, sue them, spend, you know, bad, uh, more bad money after good and, you know, invest more time. And so uh, the nice thing about the PVC model is once you have a listing, You're kind of initially sort of like a private public company because you may not have a lot of liquidity right away, but that's okay because us and a lot of our network investors know that if they want to sell, if they need to sell, they still can. Sometimes it's got to be a little patient, but it gives you options and alternatives versus being stuck in a pure private situation, which is, you know, often almost like dead money. So, uh, So we ended up learning that, hey, you know, there's a really good model to use public venture capitalists to try and build some of these companies privately. And then what we found just in our circle of uh, investors around the world is they you know like that you know model. they'd rather invest in companies that way versus in a, in a pure private so so with Varsna capital, um, we've I can't even uh, uh, keep track of how many companies now over the years we've taken public, but it's got to be probably uh, thirty at least you know one or two a year kind of thing um, and uh, it's, it works great for a variety of sectors and certain types of companies. And so, you know, for some of the listeners who are going to be thinking about potentially exploring this uh, path, you know, can kind of tell you about what my wish list is. Um, yeah, but, you know, that'd be great. For sure. So so we've, we've worked in three main sectors over the years. So we've always worked in the mining resource sector. Um, it's hard not to being in Canada. You know, it's one of the big finance mining hubs around the world, like, you know, Australia, London, you know, that kind of thing. Yep. And um, the thing about mining too, because it is quite risky. So, you know, as a pure private company, you generally don't see mining companies uh, raise money and explore that way. So, uh, but it's cyclical. And so with 25 years, we've had a, a lot of success in that sector. Uh, the very first company I worked on when I was 27, after I left the accounting firm, was a diamond exploration company. And so we were part of the initial diamond rush in northern Canada, Northwest Territories, where diamonds had been discovered. And um, lo and behold, our uh, little itty-bitty mining company uh, found this mother load of diamonds, and our stock went from pennies to $9 a share. And, uh, you know, this freshly minted CA and, You know, that just left KPMG, and it's my first deal I'm working on. I'm like, whoa, this is fun. The sure sharpies accounting. Yeah, no um, kidding. Yeah, and uh, this is easy. You know, every deal is going to be like this, which obviously is not the case. But uh, it was a good way to start uh, you know, exposure to public venture capital. And just that company, um, we ended up bringing De Beers as our partner and uh, spent a billion dollars between the companies to create this operating diamond mine. So it's kind of neat because it's rare to find a mine, let alone a diamond mine. This is actually the last one uh, uh, in the world that's you know, was found, it's turned into an operating diamond mine. So it's kind of a neat story. Um, a second bucket we work in is Just real estate. In,
0: in yeah. stepping back to the, to the mining and exploration, is it exploration stage or what, what level of the, the mining world do you look to work in?
1: Yeah, it, it generally has been exploration phase. Uh, um, and, um, you know, mining and, and resource uh, exploration is, uh, you know, really tough, last a little while. But um, so the things that are getting funded are, Things are a little more you know, advanced exploration. Things have had uh, you know, work done on them and maybe been mothballed for a while. But uh, generally, we've been in the exploration side. And so we've worked in uranium. We had a successful company that we sold to a larger uranium company. Um, the best one was a company in Africa um, in the Congo, the DRC, that uh, was called America Mineral Fields. And um, the stock basically went from eight cents to thirty dollars a share. Oh wow! And so that was the best one that uh, we've been involved with so far on the mining side. And um,
0: and what, did, yeah, what that was, did that look like? What did that deal look like when you first stepped in and and uh, took it down the path? I mean, I hope you I hope you got out at thirty, but what what did it look like along the path there?
1: Yeah. So it, it was a combination of a, a number of things that kind of aligned, and so. Uh, there was a very famous Canadian company called Diamond Fields and you know, it's a fun story. They were looking for diamonds in Labrador, and Newfoundland and they ended up finding some a mother load of nickel and um, they ended up selling company to Inco for, I think like 3 billion. And so the principals of that company after they left were looking for uh, a public company to work with for the next project, which were these assets in Africa. And, um, we were introduced to them through uh, some lawyer friends of ours. and we were just coming off a hot hand with a couple of our companies that had done very well. And so it was a combination of a bunch of people getting together who had a strong track record and it created a lot of interest in the company. And so the uh, first financing I think we did was at seven fifty a share. And um, yeah, just a lot of people who followed you know the ourselves and these other people wanted to be part of their next deal. So that was a big part of it It was, um, you know, the team. And you'll hear that over and over again. It's often it's all about the team and the execution more so than the idea.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so, yeah, so that was uh, uh, you know, it's kind of rare, obviously, to have that kind of success. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, we, we were able to sell some at the, at the peak price, too, which was always fun. Um, and so just carrying on. And then so a second sector we work in is real estate. Um, that's generally private. We've had some success with creating some REITs. So we created one that became uh, White Rock REIT, uh, which got bought by Dundee REIT. So it was a big grand slam win for a lot of our investors and shareholders. Um, but most of our portfolio is in operating companies, primarily social impact, um, and they all use technology. You know, I, I get asked sometimes, well, is there a difference between, you know, sort of an ordinary business and technology. And, and my answer is, well, no, every company has got to become basically a technology company. doesn't matter what you're doing, what you're manufacturing. You know, you've got to use technology to make things more efficient or more scalable. So basically every company is a tech company. Um, and so, uh, yeah. And, and so in that bucket, uh, the very first company um, that we worked on was uh, called Carmana Technologies. And it was uh, in Victoria. Victoria, and we basically built it into Canada's largest solar company and uh, it was a rocket ship ride we basically took it public through a, um, a shell company so, so public venture capital in Canada it's rare to see IPOs um, You know, it's really only for very advanced companies so you might see one or two Canadian IPOs a year so most companies are going public through reverse takeovers or RTOs or reverse mergers, uh, use all those terms interchangeably so that's where you've got a either a special type of company that's been set up to be a shell, like a, a CPC, a capital pool company, um, or it may be an existing company that had a business that didn't work out. And so they you know got rid of that business and turned that company back into a shell company, which has some inherent intrinsic value as a, as a listing. And so that company will now look for a new business. And um, generally, the difference between IPOs and RTOs is RTOs are usually cheaper, quicker, faster, as opposed to IPOs. Um, and so um, it, when we did the Carmana deal, that company grew from a startup to $75 million in revenues over five years. So it had a 75% CAGR every year uh, wow. annual, annual growth rate, which gets harder as the base is getting bigger. And, um, so, uh, yeah, we took the company public, it went up tenfold. Uh, a lot of people made a lot of money. The founder, you know, is retired in South Pacific on a sailboat. <laughs> so obviously he's very happy too. And, um,
0: there's a couple of, a couple of points I'd really like to, to discuss on that. I mean, one is what that deal looked like when you first stepped in and, and the participation level you had and, uh, some of the, the points that that helped you make the decision to participate. And then as Varshney Capital does, participate in a big way. I'm sure board positions or uh, helping with management. That's one aspect. But also, Carmana is, is something that I remember as it was is a real leader in what was social, uh, yeah, company with a social cause. And that leads to a big part of Arshani Capital being the social impact investing. So,
1: Yeah, no, for sure.
0: Can we talk a bit about the, what the deal looked like and then get into the broader side of, of what social impact investing is to you?
1: Yeah, no, for sure. And so, so uh, Dr. David Green was the founder and um, he approached us uh, to basically help him finance this uh, solar powered LED lighting company. And You know, he had his own experiences to bring to the table, which is why he ended up at our door. But, you know, he he and I actually have done this case study that we took around, uh, you know, North America a few times and spoke to audiences. But basically his first company was all debt financed, And him and his partners were, um, you know, feeling like kings of the castle because, you know, they didn't have any dilution. There was three shareholders, you know, and they owned 100 percent of it. And, um, you know, they basically got money from the bank to grow it. But the problem with debt, it's a double-edged sword. And so they had personal guarantees on their homes. And when the business took a turn for the worse, you know, went south and the personal guarantees were about to be called and they almost lost their homes. They're like, okay, this wasn't very fun anymore. Um, and then his uh, second company was venture capital backed. Um, it was called Next Phase. And so he had raised $100 million between Canadian and US VCs. And uh, for a while, you know, obviously felt like a you know um, a king. But as we talked about earlier, you know, when the business took a turn for the south, and all these anti dilution rights kicked in, and he got punted out of his own company, he was like, "Well, that wasn't very fun." And so his uh, last company um, was Carmana, the solar company. And um, so he had educated himself to learn about PVC, and he realized that uh, pretty much all these companies, uh, they have a very simple cap structure capitalization structure they have one class of common you know shares and that's it so his main thing that he wanted um in his you know uh, company was to have effective control for as long as possible and so he realized that you know this would be a mechanism that would allow him to do that so um he did his research and ended up at our door he said look a number of people i spoke to said you're the guys we should be working with and um being a PhD, he was very methodical. So it was, uh, it was fun for us too because he was so prepared. Like, basically, I call it an RTO in a box. Like, he had a big binder with the tabs business plan, audit, financials, material contracts, you know, boom, boom, boom. Wow. <laughs> so it was a very smooth um, uh, process to get him initially funded. And um, he worked with him for a number of years. Um, but yeah, and, and uh, actually, I'm going to go back a bit, Corey, too, because when we were in the operational phase, we did the diamond company first which was a great success. And then our second company actually was a casino company. So land-based casinos, poker slot machines, that kind of thing. And it was called Thunderbird Gaming. And I'm in my late 20s when we did that company. And uh, it was a, a rocket ship as well. Like we, we grew it from an idea to $35 million in revenues in three years. And I had used my former um, accounting from KPMG to help structure some of the uh, tax uh, um, uh, issues with it. And so on 35 million of revenues. We did 6 million of net income post-tax. So wow. 25 to share earnings. Yeah. So it was a Bay street darling. We had all the big Bay street firms, uh, um, you know, involved with the deal. Um, and so just kind of winding the clock.
0: Sorry to jump in there, you know, to, anything? to the points there to that point of a Bay street darling. I mean, it's aside from the revenue and the, uh, uh, the, the, um, profits you were taking out of that or the company was producing. What do you think made it a Bay street darling? Was there, did you have great promotion behind it? Uh, was there, was there a hell of a board on there that it just made it easy? What, what really got that in the spotlight aside from the the big numbers, which I mean, <laughs> they probably is that, but it was there something else that helped get it in the spotlight.
1: Well, you you touched on probably two of the most important things, which is the goods, as I call them, like, you know, so delivering that revenue growth, the profitability, literally we had, I think, man, it was 17 or 18 quarter after quarter, like every quarter was bigger than the prior quarter, right? Wow. So it's that that hockey stick thing. At the end of the day, there's two types of public companies that do well. There's the ones that do yield, right? Because everybody loves cash flows, so like REITs. Yep. And then, then there's growth. And it's when you're kind of in between and I call it no man's la-la land where you're not yield or growth. You know, that's where like you got no liquidity. You can't raise money. You got all the costs, none of the benefits. It's a headache and stress. You're thinking about privatizing, right? And the Holy Grail is a growth stock that pays a yield. So like Amica, the retirement home company, paid a nice dividend every year. And we sold it for a billion, right? While it grew. (laughs) Um, um, But as we tell our entrepreneurs, you know, if you're going to entertain the possibility of going down this public venture capital path for your business, you got to be very clear uh, and, and um, you know right up front that now you're going to have two businesses. You got the business of the business and you got the business of the stock. And that they both take some time, effort, attention, and, and marketing budget basically, right? So um, with the public comments, you need to have a bit of that IRPR. So we had Uh, Some amazing shareholders and investors um, and tools to our our, um, uh, disposal that we use, like uh, some of these newsletter writers, independent newsletter writers that uh, have audiences that pay them for ideas, for investments. And so we had uh, several that were uh, involved with us that um, were really good at taking the the messaging and the information and the goods and getting it out there to a broader audience. Um, So, yeah, really good IR PR marketing backed by the management team delivering really strong financial results. That's the magic. Right. You can, you can kind of create, you know, a stock that goes up and down, right? But if you don't have the goods to back it, you know, as I said, it's not going to stay. It's going to come back down. So the magic happens when both sides are, you know, doing their thing. Um, Do you have and-
0: a, when it comes to producing those kind of results and not to just mm-hmm. focus on promotion, but I think it is a very important thing. Do you have a rule of thumb that you look and say, you'll need to allocate X percent to your public marketing efforts?
1: Um, sort of. Yeah. You know, it's just like when you set a marketing budget for your company, for the you know, sales and marketing of your product side. You know, we definitely you know, recommend you know, having some sort of budget as well for the public company side. And like the private you know, marketing side, it's a bottomless pit. <laughs> like, it'll take up. <laughs> As much as you want to give it, right? So, the, the trick, the key part is how do, you, how do you be effective with those dollars and get the ROI, right? And so, um, it's part art, part science. And so, um, yeah, it, it is tricky. <laughs> um, but you definitely need to have the expectation of setting some budget aside to, you know, for trips and, and, and marketing, that kind of stuff.
0: And w- what avenues are you seeing nowadays that are working? I mean, we, we're really moving into a world that is just so digital and you have. You know, letter writers who who have global exposure and different avenues, which uh, you can get your message out. What are you seeing that's working? If if you want to share the goods or the uh, the secret sauce.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, it's it, it's it's a lot of it's the same uh, old fashioned hard work. Like um, there's you know nothing like you know face to face, right? And so meeting an institutional investor, a, a, a key um, significant you know stockbroker. He's got a big book of clients. He's looking for good ideas, um, and uh, the internet definitely has changed things because, yeah, there's so many different sites and, and um, you know, ways to get the information out there. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it's just kind of added some steroids to it because literally you got global reach now through the internet um, for for things, and, and money's more. Uh, global like so you know before you wouldn't see as many people from around the world say maybe invest in in canada on, on some of these you know junior market stock market listings but you know we've got people from all over the world you know that uh, who will buy our, our stock because canada's got a good brand and the exchanges have great reputations so um but yeah it, we, it, we use a lot of the same tools um there's just more of them available now
0: <laughs> yeah right right okay
1: um, and, and so, yeah, so the, the casino company was a, a great entrepreneurial venture, how we first cut our teeth as entrepreneurs. And uh, so when we shifted to this active investment model where we work with entrepreneurs, you know, we've walked the walk. So, you know, when they say, hey, you know, we got payroll in a couple of weeks and we don't know where the cash is going to come from. Right. They're like, okay, right, here's a playbook on that one. Yeah, or, you've been there. Yeah, totally, and and or you know, my my controller stole from me, and and you see, you know, bad stuff like that once once in a while. So like, well, here's the playbook on that one, <laughs> um, and um uh, so going back to Carmana, what what happened was it became the accidental, serendipitous start for us for social impact investing before it was probably even a word. And um, when I do some talks around just this particular topic, you know, I I say three things really kind of got us to there. So one was you learn through age and experience just because something's legal doesn't make it necessarily good or right and not to disrespect people that make their living in you know some industries like gaming but you know our view is you know doesn't matter how much money you can make if you were pitching me a deal in gaming I would be out because I could say that we're also hurting some people too mm. So uh, uh, it was age and experience, and then uh, a huge one for me, too, was just uh, uh, when we started Carmana, my first child, our daughter, Jaya, was born, and I found becoming a parent really impacted how I looked at not only business, but the planet, because now you've got this wonderful little person in your arms, and you know, we had a, a second child, a son later, too, but you know, uh, I started thinking about how can I make the planet better for her and, and other kids and future generations and use business as a tool to create that sustainable change. And, um, so kind of got us going on a social impact, uh, path. And then the third factor really was just, as you get older, you start thinking about legacy, you know, like what's your role on the planet? Like, why do you exist? And and when you die, is anybody going to care? Is anybody going to show up? What are they going to say about you? Right. And so start living with that, you know, a tombstone, you know, engraving and reverse engineering, you know, back. And, um, Uh, Yeah, I just find it's uh, a lot of fun working in social impact investing because if you can do good and make money, to me, that's a no-brainer, right? Like, uh, you're just excited every day when you wake up about what you're going to be working on. Um, And everybody you work with is just a lovely person. Like, I remember during the gaming days, and then we actually – the last company was an internet gambling company, so it was online poker and slot machines. But just some of the people you met, you wouldn't want to, you know, invite them home for dinner. You know that high bar would you invite them home for dinner? But as much I wouldn't, right? But <laughs> the social impact—like everybody's just a lovely person because you know the, they're so um, passionate about trying to do something amazing to help the planet or people or hopefully both and unite. Um, we're chatting a little bit earlier as well, but it, it doesn't mean you have to sacrifice profit or the ability to make money. So um, I, I,
0: further on that, I was going to say, is there? Is there a stigma? Would Bay Street or Wall Street look at social impact deals and, and scoff? Or is that changing?
1: It's definitely changing. I think, one, because people are seeing, you know, like carmena you know, those 10-bagger stock, like solar. <laughs> so they're seeing there are a lot of companies that have been successful. And um, the other big factor is we're just seeing the effects of climate change and, and what's happening to you know, the planet with, you know, a million species about to be, become extinct, right? The plastic in the oceans, that kind of thing. So it's interesting at our, at our office, we actually have copies of the Dr. Seuss book, The Lorax, right? So amazing book, amazing uh, movie. I don't know if you've seen it yet. Um, but, i put it on the um, list. Yeah, no, for sure. And, and so, you know, this fellow had it right. The author, when he wrote this a number of years ago, you know, everybody's got their head down, consuming the earth. Right? And, and when you look up, it's scorched earth. And so if the earth is dead, you're going to be dead. We're going to be dead. right? <laughs> like it's kind of you know, that simple. So we have to use business as a tool to create the changes that we need to see in the world. That Gandhi quote. Um, and so the way we're going to fix the air, the soil, the oceans, the plastic is through sustainable businesses. Um, and charity and philanthropy is important and needed. My family does a lot of that as well, but it's sustainable businesses is how we're going to fix some of these things or a combination of the two. What,
0: Praveen, what would you say to people who may look at, at the position you're in now and challenge you and say, well, it's, it's easy for you to, to lead uh, an initiative of sustainable business because you've made it. You, you've had your wins and your successes, and, and you built them off of companies that... Uh, perhaps don't fit that social side anymore. How would you respond to that?
1: Um, so I would say uh, definitely. You know, early in my career, like you know, you, you a UBC grad, I leave accounting, and you got to get a job, and and so you know, and you start doing gaming, right? Because it's a legal industry. But as said uh, just a few minutes ago, you learn that just because something's legal doesn't mean it's good or right. So uh, it, it wasn't really like I had thought hard about what I was doing. It was just, you know, like just started my career to make money. Um, but what's definitely happening is there's a big shift and movement, not only on the capital side to acknowledge that, you know, we need to do this and you can still do good, but in the war for talent, we're seeing that a lot of the younger generation, you know, they only want to work for companies that are doing something amazing and impactful versus just showing somewhere up for a, you know, a paycheck and a job. Um, uh, a couple of years ago, I did a, a keynote up at our uh, university, and the students were doing their first social impact conference. And um, I congratulated all of them. I, I said, "You know, this is absolutely amazing that you kids, at, you know, age 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, are so dialed in that you've already figured out at your age that you don't just want to show up somewhere for a paycheck and 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 you know uh, go through the motions of a job. You actually want to work for a company that's doing something amazing, and impactful." So. Um, so they're a lot more enlightened. So, uh, as I said, I think a lot of companies now are going to have to move in that direction anyways, because if they want to get people to work for them, right, they're going to have to you know, do something like that.
0: Yeah. I, I understand that then. Yeah. I mean, the, the talent acquisition piece seems to be, a um, almost a card up the sleeve now.
1: Yeah, totally. And it, 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 I'd be curious, and, and I'll tell you my my view, but you know, I get asked, so what does that mean? What's social impact investing, right? And so how, how would you answer that, Corey? I'm now interviewing you.
0: <laughs> hey man, this this is great. Um <laughs> what I look at, or what I would call social impact investing, is is those companies that are really taking a, an approach to to very like as part of their brand, be very conscious and and look to limit some of the things they're doing in pursuit of something that is that doesn't have a direct tangible profit component to it with the exception of maybe Patagonia uh, and you know really just Patagonia I can't think of a lot of companies that that do that that would hit the world scale at this point Uh, but there's no doubt I do think it's important
1: yeah no and and so the way I answer that question I go look I, I like to start with like I can tell you what it's not Right. So it's okay. not, say, a tobacco company that's going to take 10 percent of its profits and give it to a charity. Right. And, and right. so the, the, the way I describe it, it, it's, you know, if you took a room of 10 people and described the company, you know, it's, it's reason for existence. It's why, you know, they would say that is social impact. Right. Because, you know, it's doing something with healthy food or, or clean energy or, or, you know, circular economy um, or, or med tech, that kind of thing. So, so it's kind of a more of a broad definition. And because we don't really run a fund, it's a family office. We've got more flexibility on, on what we invest in and, and sort of the criteria and, and you know, how we describe things like that. Okay. But, um, uh, but there are firms that are coming up now that are, are putting in measuring tools right, uh, um, to uh, make sure that they are you know, investing in things that uh, fit more of a defined you know, definition of, of social impact. So uh, kind of interesting trend
0: with the work you're doing in social impact, what are, what are some of the examples of the companies that you're investing in or that, that you've been working with?
1: Um, oh, wow, man, I, I could talk for hours on this, <laughs> but you know we're really, really lucky and fortunate to be working with <clears throat> probably 15 different companies. They're all doing something amazing. And so uh, some specific examples, um, we have a, a company called Plastic Bank. And so what they're doing is dealing with the whole issue of plastic in the ocean. You know, you've got the gyres, which is basically kind of like a bit of a whirlpool. So every ocean has a, has a gyre where the currents meet and garbage is collecting. The Great Pacific Ocean Garbage Patch, the one in the Pacific Ocean north of Hawaii, is the biggest. And it's not like a floating island. A lot of it's just under the surface, just a pile of goop. And a lot of it's degrading. It's getting into the ecosystem. So pretty much everything out the ocean is contaminated. So if you eat seafood, you're probably eating plastic. Um, And so with Plastic Bank, we're trying to solve that problem, but also alleviate poverty at the same time. So how we do it is we're basically becoming the world's largest plastic recycling company. So now we've set up these banks or uh, collection centers in Haiti, the Philippines, Bali, Indonesia where we have thousands of entrepreneurs whose job is to harvest the plastic and and prevent it from going into the oceans. Uh, The analogy we use is, you know, if your sink is overflowing in your home, the first thing you're going to do is not grab a mop. The first thing you're going to do is turn the tap off, then grab the mop, right? So it's great. A lot of people focus on beach cleanups, and there's this machine that's trying to scoop up the plastic, but it's just going to keep coming. (laughs) So we got to turn the taps off first, then do the cleanup. Yeah. Right. So with a plastic bank, um, we're addressing as said, poverty as well as the whole plastic uh, ocean issue. Um, we've got a company called Ronin Eight, and so it's dealing with the whole electronic waste problem. So e-waste, massive growing you know thing where you know there's so many old used cell phones and motherboards and solar panels and what do you do with that stuff? And a lot of it was being sent to countries like Ghana and China and India where little kids. You know, really young, their job was to take it apart to get at the precious metals. And because um, every, every one of these you know items has minute quantities of gold, silver, palladium, rare earths, so there's a lot of value in them. But you also got caustic corrosive chemicals, so little kids are getting sick and dying. And, and so a lot of these countries have now shut that off. You know, they're like, we got enough of our own, you know, plastic and e-waste that, you know, we don't want other people's
0: It's certainly but- something you're seeing hit the headlines uh, about countries signing on and to no longer exporting their waste.
1: Yeah, and, and so, so we got to move towards that, re, that, sorry, that circular economy where basically everything kind of gets reused. And so with Ronin, you literally just dump the stuff in one end and everything gets separated. And The most precious thing, the most valuable thing is the precious metal. So it combines my interest in mining and resources and, and technology and social impact in, in one. So it's like guaranteed mining for gold on land in an urban environment without the risk. You don't have-
0: That's fantastic.
1: Yeah, huge exploration risks, huge capex, uh, permitting, environmental, uh, you know, geopolitical, First Nations <laughs> issues. Um, you know, we've got uh, uh, another company that's basically called Evanesc, um, um, and so they basically have created packaging that's going to be used for companies that you know do like, say, meat trays, like a styrofoam, and and you know, and so theirs is uh, biodegradable. So, they've got a number of packaging companies uh, lined up to uh, use uh, the product. Um, maybe just give you one more example. It's called GPAC. And so, it's the world's first biodegradable single serve POD, to replace the plastic K cups and, and Kurg you know, uh, that makes an espresso. So, ours isn't recyclable, it's actually biodegradable. So, you can actually throw it in your green, um, uh, your home garden, or your, your uh, recycling box at, uh, at work. Uh, so, so all these companies, they're doing something amazing, as I said, for the planet uh, and people. And you can make a lot of money. So uh, it's quite exciting.
0: That's excellent. That's excellent. The ROI is one thing. Um, and I would understand that you're looking to not just have a return of capital, but a return on capital, as we mm-hmm. touched on earlier. But how, would you, how far would you be willing to, to go to balance out the social impact? With uh the difference in capital return
1: yeah so so wh- you know, when we're working with these early growth stage companies, uh, you know they're generally going public right or raising that round at a five to say twenty million dollar valuation, right so we're kind of getting early and 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 one of the reasons we like these early stage growth companies is because the valuations are quite low, right, and so uh, in our view, with good execution. Um, and sometimes the luck is always good, too. But, you know, you can get these companies going three, four, five, ten times you know, higher. Right. So I, I call it batting singles. Like, you know, we talked about billion dollar unicorn valuations. And so, you know, if we can build companies to 50 million, 100 million, 500 million market cap, which we've done you know, many times, I'll call that a single. I used to coach baseball and softball for 14 years, but you know, four singles is a home run, right? Yeah. So we're we're more about batting singles. And in in a lot of people's world, the single I describe would be a home run because you know, if you can make two, three, four hundred percent in in a company, that's pretty darn good. And and because it's uh, a public company, you know, we've got RRSPs, you know, our retirement saving plans, and and TFSA's, you know, another uh, tool available that you can actually shelter some pretty amazing gains in. So uh, um, yeah, we don't think we sacrifice return, or really think we you know need to focus on some number because generally that's sort of the the spot. A lot of our deals are are going to end up um, uh, returning an ROI, in. so uh, which is one of the reasons we love what we do.
0: <laughs> I gotcha. And do you have any examples of the companies that you're working on? I mean, I think social impact is for Varshini Capital now is is I mean probably the one of the the key drivers, right? What yeah. companies are you working with now that that have fit that uh you know have reached the values or fit the the hurdle of values that you're looking to uh to invest and build on?
1: Yeah, I know for sure. So so uh one of them um we just had a uh significant event uh, for it recently but uh it's called Hempco. H-E-M-P-C-O, and uh, we were approached by this family of entrepreneurs that had a company that was in hemp, so hemp for food as a source of protein, because it's one of the best sources of protein, and for fiber you know, to use for um, making things, and um, so we took them public, raised them some money, uh, raised them some further money, and we ended up selling half the company to Aurora. Which is the largest cannabis company in, in, sorry, one of the one of the largest cannabis companies in Canada, and uh, it was uh, basically a ten bagger um, for us. And then uh, just recently, Aurora bought off the balance of the company to basically take it uh, over 100%. But you know that's an example of uh, you know a company that's doing something amazing in the healthy food space, and uh, was a, a huge, you know, significant wealth trader for. Investors and um, uh, the entrepreneur founders, and, and that's one of the fun parts of our business. Is um, you know we we love to start by making our entrepreneurs successful. So the number of businesses uh, owners we've worked with who've you know basically retired, <laughs> right, shows us if we're doing our job right. And then you have the other investors, shareholders that participate, and, and uh, it's basically fun making other people money. Mm-hmm. And then by default, because we know we're Decent shareholders, we're going to be doing well too. So uh, um, it's, it's so it's an interesting sort of perspective the way I just described that. Um, our view is, you know, we, we like to focus on making money for the people around us, and then by default, we know we're going to be uh, be fine. As opposed to sometimes the people that use you know the public markets more nefariously, let's call it like it's more about making money themselves and if other people make some money good luck <laughs> to them right so we flip around it's more about you know making other people money first and then by default we know we'll be fine okay. and um you know as soon as you have a dollar of opm other people's money the bar that we also like to use is you can't treat it like your own you actually have to treat it better than your own that's the higher standard it's like you know it, when you raise money from other people hard earned <laughs> that, you know, that they worked uh, to save like we do not want to like use it loosely and frivolously and waste it, and, and um, you got to be very, very conscious of uh, you know being that custodian. So that's another you know thing that's kind of held us in good stead over these years. Why we've, we have get the best entrepreneurs calling us that want to work with us.
0: Well, I think that's you know that approach is is something that gives uh, gives you the reputation that you have on the street. It's um yeah, I mean it's it's huge. And in in, in taking that though, I mean the, unfortunately. As part, of, it's part of the the battle that is of being an early stage uh, public venture capital company. Is you have to fight, and and I use the word fight. You have to fight against those who are looking for a quick profit, a quick trade, or come in with with uh, some ulterior motives. How, how what what tact um, like uh, what kind of advice do you have? Tactical advice that you'd give to CEOs who are operating early stage public companies to fight against that.
1: Yeah. So it's a, it's a, uh, a very important point you're bringing up. And, and so, you know, one of the, the, the key things that we talk about is uh, this um, phrase of properly setting and managing expectations. So um, when we you know, bring investors into these deals, we basically say, look, now they've got their money, this is just the beginning now you got to give the management team some time to execute right so basically don't worry so much about the stock you know like if you if you're going to look at the stock price every day you're going to drive yourself nuts man right and so i know when i'm working with my managed companies um, you know i i might look at the stock quote a couple times a day like it's not something that you know we focus on because we want to work with the entrepreneurs to actually build the business which is as we said earlier the, the most important thing right and um Tactically, practically, one of the things you can do, though, is um, set up some mechanisms with the shares to basically lock them up, right? So, uh, in, in real estate, you know, one of the critical success factors is location, 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 right? And so, in the capital markets, we've learned it's structure, 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 right? And so, it's a, um, a key point to to make sure that you can build a runway for. The business to you know perform and not have to worry about the share price. so so I'll take it uh, back to a to the example. when we did the Carmana deal, um, the, the the stock exchange has rules around you know share releases and that kind of thing. and so they had looked at the company and realized that uh, that people that invested hard money when it was private. you know they could have their shares released over a one- year time period. and Dr. Green, the founder of the founder shares, Um, nominal price shares they said that he could have his shares released over three years and it took me two trips to victoria to convince him and uh, fellow shareholders to do something more than that because i said look that this is fine this is what the exchange is saying but i'm telling you from coming from the street (laughs) right and experience that we need something more than that so basically i convinced the hard money investors to take a three-year release of their shares. And Dr. Green to do a seven-year release of the shares. Wow! So okay, exactly right. Because you know what what we said was the strongest signal you can send to the marketplace that you believe in your deal and are willing to take the time to build it is by showing them by locking up your stock.
0: And and were you free trading?
1: Uh,
0: No. So so we had kidding, Praveen.
1: (laughs) No, 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 no. So, so it's it's an interesting question because. Like definitely the, the, when you have the shell company, you're going to have some shares that are free trading because you need a public float. Otherwise you can't be a public company. Right. So we definitely had some shares that were free trading, but we had a a big chunk of shares that we'd uh, gotten from Dr. Green that were in the same seven year escrow with him. And so he actually said, this is great because now you're showing me as my capital markets partner on the, you know, the public company side that you're in the same boat with me over seven years.
0: Yeah. You're, you're a hundred percent in, in and aligned with him.
1: Cor- correct, yeah. And so um uh and then it, so it, it we we told people to, you know, let the company perform, take that three to five years to build and and, and um but let's also back that for the outside streets so and have to rely on trust, right? Um by putting in this uh, extra voluntary pooling over and above what the exchange wanted.
0: And what what kind of share structures do you look for? I mean, if if it's a straight common share, uh how many shares free trading how many shares in the float outstanding how many how many warrants or options where where do you like to play between uh uh widely held or uh or the contrary what's what do you look for
1: yeah so so it's it's really kind of changed and shifted like we're, we've become a little bit like the australian model where they have lots of shares outstanding and and um they don't worry so much about the float um and so you know that kind of you'll hear the term sort tight structure um, it, it's become a lot more looser. Like you actually want more shares outstanding so more people can buy. Because a, a lot of these early deals are driven by retail investors versus institutional because the company's got to you know, become larger to attract you know, significant institutions. But um, So when you've got lots of retail eyeballs buying, uh, following the company, they got to be able to buy the stock. So you actually need more of a float. And, and so you know, the liquidity, the last number of years, and then um, a part of the, you know, the, the liquidity has come because of the growth in the cannabis industry, like which has been you know, uh, very active for a number of years, but you're seeing companies that trade like hundred million shares a day, right? It's very right. interesting. Yeah. The models move more to that sort of as a bigger share capitalization, more liquidity type of model.
0: Are you, are you able to put some brackets around something that you would feel comfortable with when it comes to a share structure? For example, if you've got a $20 million market cap company, what kind of uh, float would you want? Or fifty million or a hundred million what, what do you feel comfortable investing in and being part of before you look, and you go, this thing's getting unwieldy
1: yeah and, and so so it's actually um, we kind of look at more from the price perspective because it 's still kind of a perception thing, right so if you start a company a dollar a share or higher, it just looks and smells differently to people, and so you know we, we, we tend to see you know if you can price something so it's more thirty five to kind of 50 cent range as a starting point, and it works back into the number of shares. That's more important to us than the number of shares. Like, we want to more have a, a price, you know, that seems like a reasonable entry price because a
0: palatable price, eh?
1: Yeah. And, and it shouldn't make a difference, quite frankly, right? It should be six and one half down the other. Well, it, it really
0: is. And it? it is funny because, I mean, I understand the math and the mechanics of it all, but I saw a term sheet the other day and they're pricing shares at 10,000 a piece mm-hmm. and private mm-hmm. company. But I just, it, my instant feeling, was what? Yeah. and you know what I mean. And it, it was just—it was a silly gut reaction. And the math all works out the other side, but um, and being pro- private company, obviously, it wasn't a, a public one. But that was an example of that gut feeling or what's palatable to the market, I guess.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, totally right. And so, so that's more the thing that we found is because these companies, because they're earlier stage, uh, you know, you're you gonna. Price them in a range that it seems, as you said, palatable to kind of want to enter them. Um, and then you know, on your on your question about uh, you know exiting and selling a little bit too, right? So you know Warren Buffett, his uh, number one rule of investing is preserve your capital, right? And uh, his rule number two is see rule number one, which is how important rule number one is, right? <laughs> so yes. pra- practically, what we we talk about with these venture exchange, earlier stage growth companies is um, let's say you bought at 35 cents a share, right? And the stocks doubled or more, right? Well, take a little bit of the profit off the table, try and recoup some of your initial investment back. And so uh, you might end up with a share position at a much lower cost price than, or free. You might end up you know, taking enough on the table so the shares you've got left, you've know, you got no cost. Now you can take a bigger risk with them, right? Um, and with the entrepreneurs as well, so Dr. Green, even though he had a seven-year, you know, escrow on his shares, you know, we basically said, look, the way the rules work, you're actually going to get a release from day one. Like you're going to get a quarterly release and you're going to have enough shares, you know, free tradable, if you wanted to take some liquidity off the table. And um, we like to work with entrepreneurs who may not understand the markets to help take some of that liquidity because it's just prudent. Right. So, you know, we said, Hey, you know, if you generally people don't like insiders, you know, quote selling, but um, you know, it's prudent to take a little bit off the table while we continue to build a company to do that one trade, to hopefully sell it as a, a you know, public company to a strategic investor, right? So you're not just all in all the way because there's risk, you know, regulatory risk, uh, technology risk, that kind of thing.
0: Right, right, I hear you. And I mean, that's, that's actually a really interesting point is that even with a seven-year release or a three-year release for, for the founders, there's no way they would be able to get uh, or not, no way. But there's very limited likely they'd have enough liquidity to be able to sell tactfully into the market without sinking the stock. So to spread it over seven years, it uh, it really aligns the interests and, and gives them the ability to take a bit off the table, but not not hit the market with it.
1: Yeah, yeah, totally. And 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 so you don't potentially depressed the share price, but also it's the whole perception, right? From, from the market, okay, the, the founder's bailing, right? Who's going to be like like uh, driving the ship here?
0: Yeah, right, right. So so with, with Varshini Capital, how do you define venture capital from merchant banking and from advisory services? There seems to be some ambiguity on the street of, of what each one is and the parameters of them.
1: Yeah. Yeah, totally. And, and so, uh, you know, being a family office, you know, we're not agents. We don't fundraise for companies and take a commission, right? You need to be licensed and all that kind of stuff anyways. And and so, you know, that's generally what, you know, these brokerage firms, for example, are, right. Um, they're more transactional. You know, they love to make a financing, take a fee and move on to the next deal. And then they'll show up when you need some more money. Um, so it's all good. So with, with us, you know, we're starting off as, investors first and foremost so if you're pitching me a deal you're trying to sell me your dream and if I buy into your dream I'm gonna collectively now figure out with you how to make it a reality and so you're going to need money and uh, there's money for the sake of money you know there's a spot on the cap table for some you know dumb money let's call it but generally you know we advise and we believe we are uh, what we call smart value add money right so you know, we're trying to help our entrepreneurs over and above and beyond the check. And uh, so that comes in a number of ways and folds. So one is, you know, our experience as fellow entrepreneurs that have walked the walk. So, you know, we want to work with you and, and um, help you, you know, go down that path. Um, secondly, you know, uh, I'm a CPA. My father's a CPA. My brother's a securities lawyer. So we've got our professional backgrounds and experiences to bring to the table. And so, um, you know, we're not going to do that area of the work, but we'll work with, you know, external lawyers, external accountants um, and help manage that process. Um, uh, A third sort of bucket of smart value add um, that we bring to the table is just our collective experiences in the capital markets. So when it comes to raising money and structuring and going public and M&A and JVs, all this kind of stuff, we've got the experience and the contacts to bring to the table. And the last thing would be just our general Rolodex of contacts. Uh, globally, so uh, we end up becoming this sort of outsourced sales and marketing business development arm for our entrepreneurs. And most of life, as you learn and, and, and you know, is it's not about what you know; it's who you know, right? And so, having this uh, amazing global rolodex of contacts that we can open up doors like crazy for entrepreneurs really helps accelerate, you know, uh, the business. And so, through a number of organizations that we belong to, uh, like EO, which is the largest entrepreneur group in the world, Uh, TIE, T-I-E, started in Silicon Valley by some Indian people, it's all over the world. Um, we have a lot of connections into YPO and WPO and CEO. So pretty much in any major city in the world, if you tap into a chapter, um, someone from one of those groups, it's like the who's who of that uh, um, business community. So so we've got this crazy-ass Rolodex on steroids that we can open up doors like crazy for entrepreneurs. So the whole process of connecting I find is really fun and exciting. So before we've even invested in an entrepreneur, we're already we thinking of all the doors that we're going to open up for them. Um, or we'll flip it around. We'll say, "Well, who, who's your sort of ideal customer you want to get into?" And then we'll go back to our our um, role decks to see if we have a great contact in, and if we don't, we'll use LinkedIn, that kind of thing. So uh, it's, a, it's a big part of our our value add. And then through experience, what we've also learned is before you get to the smart value add money you want value aligned money like i've seen the mistake where you know an entrepreneur takes in money from an investor who's really smart but all of a sudden they're making them cut corners that you know to, to make the profits higher that don't necessarily fit their values and so that's going to be a recipe for disaster um, and divorce so you want value aligned money and smart value add on top
0: well, what what an so- interesting uh, combo there when you start to think about layering money and coming in first, you you know, you, your friends and family are at right, dumb money. Uh, you move up to value-aligned money, the money that sees the vision is willing to work. Then you can step into value-added money uh, when you've earned it, if it effectively. That's, um, to me, I'm just picturing this of, of how you can stack your money or stack that cap table.
1: For sure, yeah. And then if you, um, it, 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 there, there's an expression in the office that we use regularly. It's an African one that says, alone, you can go fast. But together, we can go far. So it's all about building teams, right? I play a lot of team sports. I coach baseball, softball, that kind of thing, as I mentioned. And you learn business is all about teams. And so you've got the the business side, the operational side, that's going to have to, you know, make sure that it's got the team filled out or swap people in as the company grows. But we look at the shareholder base as another team. And so on kind of the merchant banking side, while we're usually the lead check in our deals, um, We've got a network of investors around the world that we'll you know, try and bring to the table um, to be you know, similar sort of value line, smart value add. So we never invest alone. Like we're, uh, we've got this network that likes to invest with us. So depending on the nature of the project or how much money is required, it literally de- determines who we're gonna phone or email. Like so we have investors in Europe and Asia. And so some of them like real estate, some people like cash flow, some people like technology. Some of them work with us across the board, but we'll, you know, find the right investors to bring to the table as well um, for our deals. So that's kind of like the, I guess, the merchant banking side. And and the venture capital is really public venture capital because this is early growth stage stuff, you know. Um, But it's interesting because, you know, entrepreneurs, we have a massive bias towards action versus talk, right? It's already fire aim versus ready aim fire, but we're not gamblers. Like I don't know many successful entrepreneurs that, you know, just pure gamblers, right? So it's all about calculated risk-taking, right? And um, getting as much of the information as you can, and you're not going to have the perfect, you know, uh, shot or the perfect amount of information, but it's going to be a gap and then you take that leap, right? So uh, um, it's about calculated risk-taking.
0: When discussing that and and, uh, there's – there's an ideal stage of a company that you would like to see come to you and that you would take to market. What is that?
1: Yeah, no, for sure. So, so uh, what we've learned from Carmana, uh, another very successful transaction uh, company we work uh, where was called coastal contacts or clearly contacts. And so, um, you know, that particular one, you know, I was their very first seed investor and then 12 and a half cents. So we helped them go public at a dollar share the Company grew to over 200 million revenues, and it was sold to Essilor out of Europe, largest optical company in the world, for 450 million cash, 1250 a share. So that was an example of a you know, strategic sale as a public company, and it moved from the venture exchange to the Toronto Stock Exchange to Nasdaq. But uh, both Coastal and Carmana had uh, three-year track records as private companies of growth. And the numbers were almost identical—about seven hundred grand, eight hundred grand in revenues in year one. You know, one point two to one point five in year two, and then two and a half in year three. So it's kind of almost like a double, double, double. And the the thing with pretty much every business plan you see is they all, in their projections, have that hockey stick growth curve. Right? (laughs) They look identical, and uh, you know, just change the name of the company, and the industry, or whatever. But the way we phrase it is. Um, the way you uh, inspire confidence, you're going to hit the rest of the hockey stick growth curve, is by having some actual trend line momentum to show that it's working, right? So, both Dr. Green and the, and the founder of Coastal had done, you know, that kind of three-year growth on fumes, you know, and, and so uh, it's exciting when you see an entrepreneur who's done so much with so little, and if you can give them some proper capitalization. You can see how they're going to hit the rest of that curve. So, so the ideal situation would be you've got a three-year track record of some growth. But if you don't have that, then maybe you've got five or six quarters of da da da, right? Just again showing some trying momentum because it's like surfing, right? You're trying to catch the wave. Before, um, and if you don't have you know a number of quarters to show, maybe you've got five, six, seven months of da da da, <laughs> right? And and so as you move back to the other end of the curve. It just um, makes it less likely you're going to get the funding or, or at the price that you want it, the valuation you want it. So, so the more meat you have in the bones, the, the better the valuation. Yeah. So, so it's more about showing that uh, it's not a development phase. It's now growth and execution and marketing and it, you know, there's a market for it. People are paying for it. And, and now it's just about, as I said, scaling.
0: Do you mind if we touch on your real estate investments? Because, I mean, mm-hmm. it's an interesting one, uh, two very different sides of the spectrum. But what does it look like uh, in the real estate investment you're doing?
1: Yeah, so I, I, um, real estate was something that we kind of dabbled in as a family office. Uh, and, and then about 14 years ago, I turned to my partners, my father and my brother, and said, we got to get really serious about real estate because so many of the wealthiest families on the planet, you know, everywhere in the world, it's all real estate fortunes. And so um, we found some entrepreneurs in real estate that we end up backing. And uh, we work in a, pretty much every area of real estate. So we do some development where we'll build multi residential, um, like condo towers, uh, homes, duplexes, and sell them. And developments are a nice one time hit, one time score. But most of our portfolio is properties that have cash flow attached to them. So apartment buildings, warehouses commercial, industrial, like warehouses, RV parks, self-storage, so we're kind of in pretty much all the asset classes. Um, most of the portfolio, though, is in multi-residential, so apartment buildings, which, in our view, is the safest asset class because it doesn't matter what's happening with the environment and the economy, people always got to live, right? And, and with commercial, we're seeing you know a lot of vacancies because it's uh, so tough in you know, retail, Amazon and e-com and online shopping, but as I said, apartment billings is um, probably the safest asset class. And, and and with apartment billings, you can actually stratify from you know high-end apartments to class B and C, which is more for the masses, which is where most of our portfolio is. Um, and it, it, interestingly, uh, last fall, I did a couple of talks uh, during Vancouver Startup Week, where each night we had, I don't know, 60, 70, 100 uh, young people out, professionals, that kind of stuff, and tech people. And the conversation of housing always comes up, right? It's like, oh, Vancouver is an expensive city to live in and blah, blah, blah. And so um, I basically made a case, you know, to rent versus buy. And, you know, basically I said, look, one, you know, your home should never be considered an investment. And, you know, we went through this anomalous period where it was just it was a rising tide that went crazy. And, um now, there's probably more risk in owning a home because, you know, the prices come down if interest rates rise, that kind of thing. And also, you know, you've got um, debt on your head because you don't actually own your home. The bank does, right? You think you own your home, but you don't, like, for the yeah. next 30 years. And yeah. so, uh, and with debt, uh, earlier in my career, I had debt, and and it keeps you up at night, right? Like, going back to Warren Buffett. I remember uh, after '08, he was sitting on billions and he was getting chastised for not investing yet. But he said, you know what, I sleep really well at night. <laughs> so I've always kind of stuck to that one um, where, yeah, if you, if you don't have debt, you're going to get better sleep. And, um, and if you, let's say you saved enough for your down payment to buy a place, but you're living far from where you work, right? Now you've got a lousy commute. And uh your lifestyle because that hour away um, each day or times two, maybe instead of being with your family or exercising, you're commuting, right? Which is stressful. <laughs> so basically rent closer to where you work, have a better life and lifestyle. Now you can actually, you know, go out for lunch versus a brown bag or take a holiday. And then the money you're saving for your down payment invested in cash flow real estate. That's how you're going to you know, more guarantee you're going to make money in real estate versus uh, um, you know, buying a home and waiting for some inflationary lift. and its you know, it's a different sort of way of think now because the old me and a lot of immigrants, you know they, they, they just believe in owning your home, right? And um, uh, yeah, with just the way the prices are, I think that's a better way to do it um, versus, as I said, you know, scraping together and you know uh, all these other issues that I talked about.
0: <laughs> yeah, I. Uh, it, you know, it makes perfect sense, um, especially with some of the way these cities are growing, this, the cost of uh, apartments and, and, you know, you, you really don't want to be subservient to 30 years of debt on something that you can never see cash flow out of until 30 years later um, or until the debt starts to come down. But w- when talking about your real estate investments and the money that you invest in them, how, do, how are those deals structured? And I would imagine a deal for uh, a development projects priced differently or or invested in differently uh, and uh, structured differently than something for a cash flowing property. Um, what does that look like for you?
1: Yeah, it's primarily two sorts of structures. So, um, you know, some of the, the assets we buy, like we have some hotels in Toronto. Um, some industrial stuff, but basically we, we set up a, a corporation and you'll have, you know, two, three, four, five investors that buy shares of the company to capitalize it and then you use that to buy the real estate, so it's in a corp. Um, other times, it's more of a LPGP, limited partnership, general partnership type structure. Uh, so those are sort of the two primary, you know, structuring mechanisms we use to, to do these real estate investments
0: are you leading as a manager and have a, a fee or?
1: Yeah. So, so generally um, it's uh, a, a handful of people getting together to buy an asset. And then, you know, cause we're not operators and then the investors I bring to the table aren't operators either. They're just people who have money, want to make a good return. Right. So, so the operator is the one who's going to you know, have a fee, let's say for operating, which is fair and reasonable. Right. But you're pretty much all coming in, evenly, right, on, on the capital stack table. With the LPGP structure, it's similar where the, the operator is the one that's going to have a, a, a bit of a promote, let's call it, um, and investors just investing to make money. And with the apartment business that we've been investing in, uh, it's just been a phenomenal ride. Like over four years, we've acquired a billion dollars worth of real estate in the, the U.S. And um, we're pretty much doubling our equity over five years. So we're averaging almost 20% annualized returns in apartment buildings, which to a lot of people, especially in Vancouver, sounds too good to be true because it's such a a desired asset class that the cap rates are so compressed. Like there's so much money that wants to basically buy a building. and, And it's more for a lot of the money that was coming here from offshore about capital preservation as opposed to return. So, you know, if they can make a 3% return, a 3 cap, 4 cap, they're happy. But, you know, so when you tell someone you can make a 20% annualized return in the safest asset class of apartment buildings, they're like, really? That's <laughs> so amazing. A lot of my investors that uh, um, I've introduced to the opportunity are doctor friends of mine. And, you know, you know they make good money practicing their crafts as surgeons, uh, you know, but their concern is when they retire, how to maintain that life and lifestyle that they're accustomed to, because if they're not of up eyes and hearts and bodies, or whatever, there's no more money coming in, right? <laughs> and so what we educate them in and then tell them is, hey, you know, um, like we're doing here, like if you can invest in cash flow real estate where you can double your money, and, and um, one of the, the beauties in real estate is you can refinance your equity. So basically, as you add value to the building, because the building's basically like a mini business, there's only two things you can do, decrease costs, So every dollar saved goes straight to the bottom line, and then increase the revenues, and then your net income is going to be higher. And there's a number of ways that uh, we end up increasing net income. So one is just increasing rents as you're allowed to, you know, as the market uh, dictates. Two, we have a a program where the washers and dryers into the units, and um, you know, sounds kind of funny, but you know, the last thing moms want to do is haul kids and coin and laundry to the basement or across the street. And so when we say, look, we'll put in a washer and dryer and just charge you extra for the rent, you know, people sign up. And from our perspective, like, we'll usually get our capital costs back in a very short timeframe, but we'll get the extra money on the room, you know, for basically forever. Um, And then the third way is we have an upgrade program. So a lot of these BNC buildings might be mismanaged, undercapitalized, tired or all the above. And so we'll come in and say, look, we provide, you know, uh, new counters and new appliances and new paint, new carpet, and, you know, we'll pay for it all and just build it into your rent. So it's, it's like if you're a commercial tenant, right? With your landlord and getting some PI budget, right? And they bill it back in your rent. And so similarly, we'll get our capital cost back over a period of time and we'll get the increased rent, you know, for much longer. And so now with that increased net income we can get a new appraisal for the building and use that to increase our mortgage and use the extra money to pay uh, all our equity shareholders out their money so now you own this building for free it's kind of like the with the stocks where you know you try and sell some and hopefully have you know some shares at a very low cost or no cost so you can basically do that model in real estate where basically you know you've got a chance to um, take your money out and now you still own your share of it and benefit from ongoing cash flow. So now you've achieved infinite returns. Basically, you're dividing by zero, right? So that's the holy right. grail of investing passive recurring income with zero investment and zero time. So so I love real estate and I kind of <laughs> use my, <laughs> my, my ventures a venture side where you can hopefully make these great returns of multiple hundred percent and then use that money and park it over in real estate.
0: (laughs) So with with the real estate side and from the GPLP or from setting up a corporation that's acquiring assets, I've always, I have been curious about, you know, what is a, what is a reasonable fee or what is the, a reasonable structure there if, if you're pulling together that money and um, acquiring assets? Like what, what where, where would you look at and say, I wouldn't be comfortable putting that forward to your team or your investors? Uh, you know, what does, you know, what does that look like?
1: Yeah. So, so typically, you know, they're called syndicators. So a lot of the, you know, there's lots of people that, you know, do these apart middling type deals, is um, half a dozen, you know, very successful ones. Um, and usually uh, you'll see a, a split like where, you know, the investors own 75%. Of the deal, and, or, and say the GP owns 25, you know, or you know, 20 to 80, or uh, the, the company we work with, it's actually a 65-35 split. And so um, sometimes when I talk to investors or show them this, they go, oh, "Wow, that seems like a, a lot of you know percentage for the operator, right?" Um, when they've seen other deals where it's more closer to 20-25. But you know what I tell them and uh, remind them of is this thing that. My father taught me and my brother growing up, which was the problems in, in life and business often come when you worry about what someone else is making, right? And so if you're happy with what you got, who cares what someone else made, right? So for example, a lot of these you know Indian doctors that are investing in this, you know, when you walk through the pro formas and show them how they're going to make a 20% return annualized and then basically get their capital refinanced, they're like, sign me up. They don't even ask the question about what the split is right
0: right <laughs> yeah
1: so so it's more about um you know the return you're going to make versus the structure right
0: thanks for for putting some light on an industry that i'm not very well versed in i've, I've definitely uh, kept my eyes on the world of public venture capital and all that so it's interesting to hear uh, the varsity perspectives on real estate
1: yeah and then you know another staff that's uh Uh, out there now is with longevity um you know this next generation the average age is going to be 108 right so if people are going to be living that much longer everybody's going to need a source of income that much longer not relying on you know so so i think for everybody in their portfolio they should be developing some cash flow real estate and as i said earlier your home isn't cash flow real estate right so i'm happy to chat with you offline and share more about some of that stuff. (laughs)
0: <laughs> Sounds great. Okay. Um, so Praveen, I'm, I'm looking at time here and this has been a really, really great interview. I, I know we've jumped around, but we've hit a lot of interesting points on the work you've done. Um, first, of all, I want to thank you so much for taking the time.
1: Oh, my pleasure, man. Thank you for having me. It's, uh, it's been fun.
0: Awesome. And one final question for uh, those who are interested in following your work and um, uh, keeping tabs of, of the things that you're were most important to you uh where can they find that information
1: uh so yeah so our, our uh um website is Varshney Capital. so that's Capital lcom com. and um yeah i guess I, what, I, what i'd just like to add is you know for all the uh, entrepreneurs or aspiring entrepreneurs that are listening um, you know, good luck, all the best. Uh, we have a lot of mutual respect and admiration for fellow entrepreneurs. It's hard work, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it can be stressful, but the rewards are plentiful. Um, you know, freedom of time, you know, lots of financial rewards, but you know, it's entrepreneurs are going to help change the world. And so, um, yeah, good luck to everybody.
0: Yeah, that, that's amazing. And, uh, Praveen, I think we need, well, I don't think, I know we need more entrepreneurs and financiers like yourself. So, uh, thanks for the work you do.
1: Thanks again, Corey.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.